I went to a mission school when I first gave my life to Jesus. And when the Sabbath was over, we used to always say to each other, Happy New Week. And so I'd like to say to you all, Happy New Week. Happy New Week. And I thought, I thought it was an original thing to that mission school. And then I traveled to Central America to preach. And down there they said, Feliz Semana, which means Happy New Week. <laughs> but uh, this was a great Sabbath. And, and praise Jesus for giving us this opportunity to worship together, to be here in this free country where we get to worship in accordance with the dictates of our consciences. We're free. We can worship. We can believe what we want to believe and we can express that belief. And it's a huge privilege. And so I'm very grateful to, for that fact. And I praise God that I'm here in this country at this time. Not everyone is afforded the same luxury on this planet. And what we have is exceptional in the course of human history. Governments, um, leaders don't typically allow people to function in accordance with their own consciences. And so praise God that we're here now. But it's not going to last forever. Uh, so as I mentioned, my name is Matt Perra, and I work in the North New South Wales Conference Office, and I've been here in this country for nine years now. And oh boy, how time flies. My wife and I came with just, uh, just she and I, just together, and now we have three kids. And so um, we didn't anticipate this. If we would have known that we were going to have three kids here, we might have not taken the decision to come here so lightly. Like, hey, you want to come out to Australia? We think that God's calling you to be a part of this conference and do this ministry and la, la, la. And, and I remember my mom was in the room when I got the call from the then president. And, and my mom looked at me and said, ah, it's no big deal. It's just another, just a plane trip away. And we were like, yeah, no problem. Just a plane trip away. Oh, how things have changed. <laughs> just, oh boy, oh boy. Three kids global pandemic, governments shutting down like never before, and yeah, oh boy, maybe I wouldn't have come, but, um, <laughs> no, but of course, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to have been able to be in this country and to serve alongside of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for these nine years. It's been a, a huge privilege, and uh, I love this conference, I love our churches, and I love uh, the people that I get to work with. We um, are doing a lot of online evangelism, and I feel like God has orchestrated circumstances in our department so that with the team, just, it just fits. We've just got great, amazing presenters in Charissa, uh, Justin, and Lyle. We have a videographer who we work with named Kyle Vincent, who works at the Media Network. We have the Media Network positioned really well in relationship to us, and so we, we've got a good partnership going on. And um, yeah, it's just going really, really well. And we feel like God's really blessing this online outreach ministry. And so, yeah, we're excited about that. So, hey, I'll, I'll just uh, stop kind of doing this preliminary introducing myself kind of thing. And uh, just let you know that tonight's message is entitled, Keep Looking. But if it seems like I'm getting through the material quickly enough, then the sermon will turn into keep looking, praying, and obeying. Because that's the whole sermon. But I don't know if I'll have the time to preach it. But um, I, I just got invited to come. This is the last ramble I'll, I'll mention. Sharissa invited me to come and to speak at prayer conference. And I said to her, oh, you know, I'm just going to be starting annual leave. I don't know if you remember this, Sharissa. 
And so, you know, I'd like to just leave and, and take off. And, and, you know, I used to do the whole preaching thing, like at events and stuff, you know, but I've left that. I'm just like a, I'm like a mole now who just sits in an office and has meetings and stuff. And I don't want to be like a preacher on a stage, you know? Oh, that's what you're doing, you know? I'll just sit here and kind of mastermind the strategy for our department and you can preach. <laughs> you be the public preacher. I'll just preach in churches on the Sabbath. And it's been a long time, you know? And uh, she said to me, she said, well, don't worry, just, just preach the sermon you preached today in church. And I was like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> sounds like a plan. So that's the sermon you're getting tonight. And what Sharissa asks for, Sharissa gets. Yeah, so. <laughs> By the way, it's so funny. When I, when I, when I, whenever Leah's around, you know, it's like, I feel really funny to say that I'm the departmental director for personal ministries, Sabbath school, and evangelism in this conference, because Leah and I both know that really she's the director for <laughs> Sabbath school, personal ministries, and evangelism in the North New South Wales conference. It's just, yeah, anyways, she's the boss. Is that right, Leah? Oh, yeah, right. That's what she does now. She's just pretending to be humble, but she fully knows she's the boss. Let's have a, a word of prayer, and we'll get into the message. Uh, keep watching. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his promise of the Holy Spirit. We remember in Luke 11 and verse 3 where he said that we who are evil, we know how to give good gifts to our children. And so how much more would the Holy Father be willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And Father in heaven tonight, we just, we ask. And we know that we don't know what we're asking for when we ask, but we ask. And you read our hearts and you know our thoughts. And so um, give us the spirit in proportion to what we can handle and what we're ready to hear. In spite of me, my lack of competency, my lack of ability, bless these your children. The word of God says in 1 Timothy 2, Lord, in verse 6, that you gave yourself as a ransom for all. And so every single person in this room is of inestimable value to you. So please don't let me get in the way of what you want to say to them. Give them ears to hear, help them to be wanting to learn and wanting to listen so that they can see through the preacher and hear the Holy Spirit speaking through his holy word. We thank you for the blessing, the, the blessing of today and the amazing messages and the great insights that we were able to, to learn and to see from your word. So bless us again, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, our message this evening begins in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles with you this evening, please turn with me in the Bible to Daniel chapter 7. We begin in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 1. Daniel chapter 7 in verse 1. The Bible says, 
in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring upon the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And we'll stop right there. So God's prophet sees in the night vision, in the night as he's dreaming, a vision from God. The sea, it's rough, it's turbulent because there's wind blowing upon it. And then he sees four great beasts coming up out of the sea. And these four great beasts are different or distinct from one another. In the 17th verse of this chapter, the Bible teaches us that what Daniel sees are nations, successive world empires arising onto the scene of action. He sees one, then he sees another, then he sees a third, and then he sees a fourth. For those of you guys who are not familiar with Daniel chapter 7, we're going to read the chapter in just a bit. But the first beast that Daniel sees that comes up out of the sea is a lion. And it's not a normal lion, it's a lion that has two wings. And the Bible says he saw that this lion was made to stand on its feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And then he sees an animal, a beast that's like a bear. And it's not an ordinary bear, it has three ribs in its mouth and it's lopsided. It has one shoulder raised up on one side and one shoulder that slumps down on the other side. And then he sees a four-headed, four-winged leopard. And then he sees a nondescript beast that has iron nails and has 10 horns on its head and then has a little horn that pokes up in the midst of those 10 horns. Verse 17 says, as I mentioned, that these four great beasts, these are four kings that will arise out of the earth. So God is giving Daniel a picture of the future, a vision, a prophecy of the future. The rise and the fall of conquering world powers. This is what he sees. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bible real quickly to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream, or to interpret. So they came in, and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit 
is anxious within me. And I need you to help me understand what I dreamed and what it means. Now, for those of you guys who don't know Daniel chapter 2, what ends up happening is the prophet Daniel, we all know Daniel 2, you were here, and I think that it was preached on yesterday. So I guess it's safe to say you all know Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, God reveals the rise and fall of successive world powers to Nebuchadnezzar, but not through the imagery of beasts with wings, deformed, predatory animals, but rather he shows Daniel the future, the rise and fall of future nations through uh, uh, the image of an image, through the depiction of a great metal image. The great metal image's head is of fine gold, its arms and chest are of silver, its belly and thighs are of bronze, and its legs are of iron. And then its feet are of iron and clay. Now when Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar, after telling Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed, when he gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream that God gave to him while he was sleeping on his bed at night, the dream that troubled him, he says to him that you, O king of Babylon, you great Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. And after you will arise another kingdom, and then a third kingdom of bronze, and then a fourth kingdom of iron. And then the iron, the feet and the clay, the, the kingdom will be divided. So one nation, head of gold, two nations, arms and chest of silver, third nation, uh, belly and thighs of bronze, fourth nation, legs of iron, and the fourth nation divides, and then the Bible says that uh, the dream showed Nebuchadnezzar a great mountain, and the great mountain had a stone cut out of it without hands, without human hands, and the stone comes down to the earth hits the image on the feet, and when it hits the image on the feet, it, it obliterates the image. It vaporizes the image. The image is just completely destroyed. And in its place arises a great mountain. And the great mountain fills the entire earth. In the interpretation of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 44 that this great stone which becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth represents God's eternal kingdom. Now there are, there are distinct similarities between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. These are corresponding prophecies. They're prophecies that cover the same time frame but they're, they're delivered in different symbols. To Nebuchadnezzar, great metal image. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, feet of iron and clay, great metal image. It depicts future events, the rise and fall of nations. But to Daniel, the Hebrew prophet, that same prophetic time period, that same forecasting of the future is, is delivered to him in, in the images of Daniel 7, which are beasts, predatory beasts. So there's 10 horns on the fourth beast in Daniel 7. Uh, after the fourth power, there's feet, and there's usually 10 toes. There's a correspondence there. There's four metals in Daniel 2. There's four beasts in Daniel 7. The horns in Daniel 7 represent, on the fourth beast represent divisions. The feet are divided of the metal image. And so you see a correspondence. And this is the biblical principle of repeat and enlarge. So Daniel 2 is a foundational prophecy 
that provides us with a basic understanding of a certain prophetic period of time, from 605 BC to the very end of the world and the setting up of God's kingdom. And Daniel 7 comes along and covers the same time frame, but adds some more detail. And some more elements are then added to that prophetic time frame. It's a very brilliant way to teach. God is really smart. He's really good at teaching. And so this is the biblical principle of repeat and enlarge. And this is what we see, but corresponding prophecies. Now there's an interesting lesson that, that can be pulled from the fact that to Daniel, these nations are presented as predatory beasts that are disfigured and ugly. And to Nebuchadnezzar as a great metal image. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, who is he? What is he? Well, he is the emperor of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He's a conqueror. He's a king. He's a ruler. Yeah? And he's a pagan idol worshiper. This is to say he worships the creation, the creations that men make, that represent God. When God shows him the future, he shows it to him through a metal image, an idol. He's an idol worshiper. Makes sense. He can relate to that. But more than this, more than this, it's presented to him as a thing of value. A thing of value. Now, he's a conquering king. Now, of course, he thinks that conquest and the, the nations and powers of men are valuable things. Daniel, though, he's an exile. He's a Hebrew exile. He's seen his homeland destroyed. He's probably seen family be killed. He's been marched off to Babylonian captivity and he's been castrated. And when, when he sees the nations of men, he doesn't see, you know, valuable metals. He sees predatory beasts that are deformed and disfigured. And furthermore, they're unclean. So to the Hebrew captive, who's the victim of empire, empires look like predatory beasts, but to the conquering king, empires look like something to be worshipped. And that's how God depicts it to them. Yeah? It's a very different depiction of the very same course of time. One to the exile, one to the conqueror. The conqueror sees it as something to be worshipped. The exile sees it as something to be feared because it's vicious, it's cruel, it's terrible, it's predatory. You ever watch the Discovery Channel? My kids like to watch animal videos all the time. When I was a little kid, I always was drawn to, you know, the documentaries about lions and tigers and bears and all the predators. And back in my day, when I was a little kid, they didn't really show you all of the gory details, you know, but now that the world is kind of changing, um, they show a lot more, you know, and I, I watch myself, you know, I'm like, yeah, let's watch the lions eating the wildebeests and stuff. And yeah, it'll be great. And I remember being a kid and, and they would only show you like the lions chasing them in slow motion, the glorious animals, the beautiful animals, the wonderful animals. And then, you know, you'd see them jump on the wildebeest and take them down and that's where it would end. And now, oh boy, it just shows ugh, just the viciousness, the cruelty of predatory animals, right? And this is how the nations of the world look to Daniel. Very different. 
Very, very different. Now, in Daniel chapter seven, there are elements added that are not in Daniel chapter two, not explicitly, not explicitly, okay? Um, there is added a little horn that's not specifically mentioned in Daniel chapter two, and there is the final judgment seat of, scene of God which precedes the kingdom of God being set up. These are two additional elements to the timeline prophecy that we find in Daniel 2, there in Daniel chapter 7. Okay? So in Daniel 2, you see first kingdom, second kingdom, third kingdom, fourth kingdom, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the dividing of Rome, the modern-day nations of Europe, certain things described about the modern-day nations of Europe, and then God's kingdom being set up in the days of these kings. That's a synopsis of Daniel 2. But now in Daniel 7, you see first beast, lion, Babylon, second beast, bear, Medo-Persia, third beast, leopard, the Macedonian Greek empire of Alexander the Great, and then the fourth power, Rome, and then the divisions of Rome represented by the ten horns. But then you see, added to the prophecy, the little horn comes up. And then you see, after the little horn coming up, you see the judgment of God in verses 9 and 10. So the little horn is presented in Daniel 7 and verse 8. And then there's a judgment scene that is shown to Daniel that precedes the kingdom of God being given to the saints and the kingdom of God coming and filling the whole earth. So those two elements are added in Daniel chapter 7. Okay, now are we all together? We have, what I hope that this has accomplished thus far is that everyone in this room can in their mind's eye see Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. So just picture in your mind's eye the great metal image with, that's composed of four different metals, right? And the, the stone smashes it, mountain fills the whole world. And then, you know, four beasts, the lion, the leopard, sorry, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and uh, the nondescript beast and the, little, and the ten horns. Okay. So that's in your minds, okay? That's just, that's in your head. Okay, we are going to read Daniel 7 in just a bit, and if there's anyone who's never read Daniel 7, they're just trusting that I know what I'm talking about at this point when I'm describing Daniel 7, and trust me, I promise I do. Um, now, something interesting can be observed in Daniel chapter 7. It's just fascinating to me. I find it really, really interesting. And this question came to my mind not too long ago. So I'm, I'm going to take you on a journey, okay? You guys mind going on a journey with me? I'll take the as a yes. <laughs> I appreciate the okay, I'll take that as a yes. Cool. <laughs> you have no choice anyways. I'm going to preach, so yeah. Um, so I'm going to take you on a, a, bit of a, a bit of a journey here. So I'm considering Daniel 7 at one point. And when you study Daniel 7, you find that the first four nations are kind of rushed through quite quickly. Verse, verses 4 through 7 describe the four universal world empires, described as predatory beasts to Daniel. It's just described real, real quickly. But then what happens is the little horn is mentioned in Daniel 7 and verse 8, and then the little horn and the judgment and the kingdom of God being given to the saints is the subject matter for the rest of Daniel chapter 7. So a relatively small portion of Daniel 7 is committed by God to, to communicate these universal empires that succeed one another through the course of time leading up to the end of time, and a lot of focus is given to the little horn and the judgment of God and the kingdom of God being given to the saints. That's really the, the main subject matter of Daniel chapter 7, really. And so there's something very significant about this little horn 
And there's something very important about the judgment of God that's convened in response to the arrival or the arising of this little horn power, okay? I mean, you can just deduce that from the text. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a longtime Bible student. You can just be like a 10th grader who can read, read the chapter a few times, and you can deduce what I've just shared right there, okay? Now, this little horn is described in such a way that it gives you the sense, the text of Scripture gives you the sense that this, this little horn is the main antagonist against God from the point that it arises in earth's history until the very end of time. That, you get that clearly from the text. It's just right there. Whoever this little horn power is, this horn power is like the arch nemesis of Jesus Christ and God's people. He persecutes God's people. He blasphemes God. He rules for a time, times, and the dividing of time. And so much attention is given to him and so much focus is put on this little horn power. because It must be very significant power. It's so significant that as soon as it arises in the text... God begins to judge. The final judgment begins as soon as this horn arises and starts to do his nefarious work. Now Babylon was, a, was, a, was depicted as a lion. <laughs> Cruel, terrible, vicious, predatory. Medo-Persia is represented as a lopsided bear with, with three bloody ribs in its mouth and a command from heaven saying, devour much, much flesh. You know, a leopard with four heads. You know, these are, these are depictions that are not meant to be flattering, right? Now, Babylon blasphemed God and Babylon persecuted the people of God. Medo-Persia blasphemed God and Medo-Persia persecuted the people of God in, a, in, in, respect, in many respects. Obviously, the Persians let the Jews go back and restore Jerusalem, but still, they were a persecuting power. They were not like favored of heaven, like where heaven looked down upon the Medo-Persians and said, woo, that's my ideal for the human race. Same with the Macedonian Greek Empire, the same with Rome. They all blaspheme God. They all blaspheme God. But now here comes this little horn power to blaspheme God and to persecute God's people and really just, just do what abominable human nations have been doing since the beginning of time. The little horn does not do anything that's exceptional. When you compare it, like the actions of the little horn, with all of the preceding powers, okay? You with me? Okay. Now, I just want to take a, take a pause in, in, in where we're going here, and then just like do a little commercial break. So here's a commercial break. Um, let's ask you a very sincere question. What is idolatry? How would you, I mean, I've been talking now for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and you've been sitting and listening, so you might not really feel at liberty to, to share, but... Okay, that, okay, false worship, turning your back on God, sure, yeah. Yeah, worshiping images. So the, so the ancients, they would, they would carve images out of wood and stone and metal, and then they would worship these images, and they would even create systems of worship around these images, right? So they'd say, okay, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a God, and this is uh, Dagon, and we're going to worship Dagon, and here's a God, and this is Ishtar, and they'd kind of, uh, kind of create these characteristics and these profiles for these gods that they had created, these gods that they had invented, and then they would pray to these gods and sacrifice to these gods, and then they would obey these gods and their dictates and commands wherever they came from, 
But uh, yeah, that's basically what the ancients did. Now, I want to say that to add to that fact, that in essence, idolatry is the worship of man's views of God. Because what is an idol other than the, the mental projection onto a physical item of what people think of God? So I have this view, I have this perspective, I have this idea about what the divine is like, what the gods are like, and then I just project that idea onto stone or wood or metal, right? So false concepts of God are idolatry. And Ellen White says just as much explicitly. So all an idol is is a physical representation of a false concept of God. And then around that false concept of God, there are false teachings and doctrines and ideas about God. Now, this is what the ancient pagan nations did, as they worshipped their own ideas about God. They were idolatrous, and they were openly idolatrous. They did not, you know, practice idolatry in the name of Yahweh. They practiced idolatry in the name of Dagon and Ishtar and Baal and all these other kinds of, you know, gods, ancient gods. Okay, so now that commercial break is over. I'm going to deliver a lot of information to you guys, but man, if you follow, you'll feel like, okay, this is a blessing, this is cool. Okay, so all those pagan nations, this is the thought that I was just developing a bit ago, all those pagan nations did what the little horn does. But yet they don't get the focus, they don't get the attention that the little horn got in Daniel 7. And after their arrival, the judgment, the final judgment of God is not uh, begun. Okay, Now God judged all of those nations with their succeeding powers with the succeeding nations, right? So, so God judges his people through Babylon, right? He punishes them. He judges their evil through the Babylonian captivity, through the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians in their turn are, are, are judged by God through the Medo-Persians and so forth and so on, right? You follow? But then when it gets down to this little horn, it's like, whoa, I'm not going to use another nation to judge them. I'm just going to start to judge myself. You follow? Now, we can just chalk this up to course in time, but I would like to say it's more than that. There's something especially offensive about this little horn. Especially offensive. It's not, God's judgment coming into, into session is not just about like, oh, this is just where the little horn finds itself in the course of time. No, this is an extraordinarily offensive power to God. So much so that it enacts him to begin to judge. The final judgment is triggered because of what this horn is doing. Okay. So what's so exceptional about the little horn? This is the question that I'm going to ask you, and then we're going to, uh, and I'm going to give you the answer in Revelation 13. So turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 13. Are you guys with me? Okay, you're all, you're all looking, and I think, yeah, I think, that, I think the Holy Spirit is here, and we're all on a journey together. But those, those calm, tranquil faces could also just simply be dinner. <laughs> Digestion, you know, I'm just not, not 100% sure. I think we're together. I think, I think we're together. God answers prayer, and so I prayed that the Spirit would be here, and so we trust that he is. So Revelation chapter 13. We begin reading in verse 1. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible here says in the apocalypse of John. My Bible says... And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then 
I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like, help me out there, what was he like? And his feet were like those of a, what does your Bible say? And his mouth like the mouth of a? And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. I saw one of its heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. Now, where have we seen the imagery of a lion, a bear, and a leopard before? Daniel chapter 7. On a very cursory level, on a very simple level, one could read Revelation 13 and know that the prophet John is in essence saying, hey, what I'm going to talk to you about is, is kind of connected to Daniel chapter 7. Same imagery. It's, 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 it's where he's, bar he's borrowing imagery from Daniel chapter 7. So this beast, seven heads, ten horns, it's an amalgamated beach, beast, which means it's composed of different parts. It's a composite power. It's a composite beast. It receives its seat, its power, and its authority from the dragon. It comes up out of the sea. Now, the imagery that's used to describe this seven-headed, ten-horned beast was originally used to describe the rise and fall of pagan nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Therefore, we know that this power is an essentially pagan power because it's composed of imagery that was originally used to describe pagan nations. Are you with me? Is that a fair, is that a fair conclusion to draw from the text? Now, whenever I say that and there's a scholar in the room, I feel like I shouldn't ask that question, so... I'll just get counseled by Erica after the sermon. <laughs> or, you know, there's lots of godly Bible students here too, right? Okay, um, so you've got this seven-headed, ten-horned beast, mouth like a lion, feet like a bear, body like a leopard. Um, when a nation falls, it gets absorbed into the nation that conquered it. So when Babylon is conquered by the Medes and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, they basically usurp the territory of the Babylonians and they absorb the Babylonians into their empire. The same happens when the Macedonian Greeks conquer the Medo-Persians. And the same thing happens to um, the Greek empire when it's absorbed into Rome. Do you follow? So the Medo-Persian empire is going to be uh, on, it's going to have uh, a bit of Babylon, Babylon in it. Greece is going to have a bit of Babylon and Medo-Persia in it. You with me? And Rome's going to have a bit of all of them in it. Does that make sense? Okay, so whatever power succeeds a previous power, it takes into itself some of the elements, some of the characteristics of that previous power. If, if Indonesia conquered Australia, guess what? Indonesia would be mixing together with, to some extent, Australia. And if you wanted to uh, depict Australia and Indonesia as different animals, and then communicate that one succeeded the other, you could, you could communicate them as a, an animal with components from both of those previous animals. Does that make sense? Okay, so now the little horn in Daniel 7 is the power that succeeds Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Right? And therefore, that little horn is going to carry in itself characteristics of Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. 
Revelation chapter 13, you have a power, a beast power that's described as leopard-like, bear-like, and lion-like. You with me? So you know that the power of Revelation 13 is the power that succeeded all of those previous pagan powers, just like the little horn. This beast is the same power as the little horn, just described differently. If you read Revelation 13, the beast rules for the same amount of time that the little horn rules for, does the same kinds of things. It's the same power. All Bible students, all scholars acknowledge this is the same. It's the same power being described. Okay? Now, this is an essentially pagan power being presented to John. The beast. Um, now, the beast has seven heads and ten horns. In Revelation chapter 12, there's a dragon that's depicted. John is in vision. He sees a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. This beast is, in a sense, an image of the dragon. In that, it has seven heads and ten horns. Okay? So, I want to just look into this beast for just a second and share with you why the little horn is so offensive that it calls God's judgment, his final judgment into action. Notice this. We talked about the beast, and it says, the beast, we're going to start reading now from verse 3. I saw one of its heads as if it had been wounded or slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? and who is able to make war with him. So the devil through this beast power receives worship. Verse five, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, an authority to act for 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blas blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and that is those who dwell in heaven. Okay, the beast comes up out of the, help me out everyone. See, the beast, one of its heads, receives what kind of a wound? A, a deadly wound, a mortal wound. A mortal wound is the kind of wound that if you receive, it's going to kill you. Like, if, like, for example, let's just say I'm walking down the street and uh, someone bumps into me and I get a little scratch on my shoulder. Would you call that a mortal wound? No. But if I walk out into the street and then all of a sudden, boom, I get smashed by a car, I'm laying on the ground, <gasps> Uh, I've been eviscerated. My legs are broken. And somebody comes over and goes, oh, I think he's mortally wounded. That means the wounds he sustained from walking out into the street and being smacked by the car are so bad. I think he's dead. I think he's going to die. So when the Bible says that this beast receives a mortal wound, what it's saying is it's wounded so significant. It's wounded so badly. It's going to die. It's dead. But the mortal wound was healed. Where does the beast get its power, its seat, and its great authority? From the dragon. Okay, now, 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 just think about all the things that you just said. When Jesus began his public ministry, when he began it, where did he begin it from? The Jordan River. When he went to be baptized by John the Baptist. 
And coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. For 30 years, he'd functioned as, a, as an obscure peasant carpenter from Nazareth. Nobody knew who he was. He wasn't functioning as the Messiah, which means the anointed, which means the Christ, which means the Savior. He's anointed when he's baptized at the Jordan River. He comes up out of the water. Jesus, to start his work on earth, his work, his three and a half year ministry of work as Messiah, out of the water. Jesus, because he was despised and rejected and betrayed by those he came to save, he was hung on a cruel cross. Now, usually, when the Romans crucified someone, they died. Jesus received a mortal wound on the cross, and he was, he, he was killed. He, he, he died, and they buried him. But hallelujah! He came out of the grave. His deadly wound was healed. And you know, if you follow the chronology of the Synoptic Gospels, you find that he ministered as Messiah for three and a half years or 42 months. Revelation 13. 42 months, deadly wound, but the deadly wound was healed. Comes up out of the water. All biblical scholars, without exception, see this power as Antichrist. Now, why do they see it as Antichrist? Well, because just, just from looking at the text without any religious prejudice or bias or preconditioning or indoctrination into a certain denomination, you can just read the text. You can just read the text and you can say all of the imagery being used to describe this power, this power that John is being seen as the arch enemy, the arch opponent of God at the end of time, all that imagery is taken from Daniel 7 and was originally employed to describe pagan nations. So you can say, this is an essentially pagan power, but this is also a power that has a Christian veneer. It, in a sense, follows after the foot. It's described in such a way that you kind of get this connotation that this is like pagan, but Christian. You follow? Because there's, there's certain attributes of this power that mimic Jesus. John, in the like I could just say this in and the, the simplest way to understand Revelation 13, 1 through 10, and, and maybe the most diplomatic way to communicate it to people outside of the faith, is to simply say that God is showing John that Christianity in the future is going to become paganized. And Christianity itself is going to become anti-Christian and paganized. This is what John is seeing. This is what John's being shown. And by the way, that's just Christian history. Now, if you said that to a Catholic, or if you said that to a Baptist, they'd say, you know what they'd say? They'd go, wow, totally. I always think that that's the best way to communicate Revelation 13 to a first-timer. It's you don't say this is the Catholic Church. You don't say, hey, everyone, this is the papal system. No, you say, this is Christianity in its middle-aged, paganized form. That's kind of how I like to do it as a first step, but you, you do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. Okay, so to the question. That was a long journey to the answer to the question. But I think it's a powerful answer, and it's an important answer to the question. Guys, the little horn takes center stage of Daniel 7. It's a big deal. The judgment happens right after. The pre-advent investigative judgment begins. The validation process begins as soon as that little horn is seen. 
What's so bad about the little horn? It just does everything that all those other pagan powers did before. Oh, oh, but wait a second, guess what? Yeah, it does do everything that those other pagan powers did, and it's not exceptional in that, but here's how it's exceptional. It did what all the pagans did before it in Jesus' name. That's why it's such a big deal. Babylonians do what Babylonians do in the name of Babylonian gods. Persians do what Persians do in the name of Persian gods. Greeks do what Greeks do in the name of the Greek gods. And the Romans do what the Romans do in the name of the Roman gods. And the ancient pagan Aryans from Europe, they do what those pagans do in the name of those pagan gods. But all of a sudden, Jesus started to do, through his followers, what the pagans always did. And you see the little horn? Judgment. Whoo! It's interesting because Daniel 7, Daniel 8, little horn, judgment. That's what you see in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Revelation 13, the beast, the message that responds, that's a response from God in response to the beast. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The three angels' messages is God's response to what this nefarious beast power is doing on planet earth as it misrepresents Jesus and the truth and the scriptures and the word of God. The three angels' message is so vitally important because it's the everlasting gospel couched in specific terms, communicated in a specific way for people in a specific situation. The situation that this beast anti-Christian paganized power has created on the planet. Now are we together still? I feel like I kind of like lost some people, but everything I'm making and saying, you, you follow? So let's turn to Daniel 7 again, and we're going to kind of bring this, we're going to start this, start our descent. I want you to notice something as we read through Daniel chapter 7. Now Daniel's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. He's durable and strong. His faith, oh, it stood the test of time. It's been tried. It's been tried. And it's interesting how he ends up responding to the things that God shows him in Daniel chapter seven. We're gonna, we're gonna skip through, we're gonna cruise through the chapter real quick. I'm gonna read as fast as I can and we're gonna notice a word, a phrase that's repeated time and time and time again, okay? So but before I do, just think about this. You're taken captive at a young age. You're turned into a eunuch. All your, your hopes of marriage, your hopes of fatherhood, your hopes of, you know, <laughs> Just a normal, happy life. They're taken from you. No intimacy, no love with a woman. It's taken from you. And, uh, and it's taken from you because of the sins of your fathers. As far as we can gather, Daniel was not an idol worshiper. He was not a compromiser in Judah. No, this, it was a generational issue from generation to generation, from king to king. They're abandoning their commitment to God and they're betraying the covenant. And here's Daniel who, who's now suffering the consequences of other people's actions. If anyone's gonna get discouraged 
and quit on God, it's going to be that guy, right? But he never quits. He never gives up. He purposes in his heart. You just got to love a guy like that. I mean, how much was taken from him? And, and, and all of it, it wasn't his fault. He was collateral damage. There's a great controversy. Some people are unfaithful. God's judging them. And he gets swept away in it. It's not his fault. If anyone's going to say, oh, God, why me? Forget you. This isn't fair. That'd be Daniel. But he doesn't do that. He just remains faithful. And he, he, you know, it's interesting, you know, and I'll, one of the major themes in the book of Daniel is that God's in control. He's not micromanaging. He's not controlling, but he's in control ultimately. And Daniel trusts that. He trusts that. And so, um, yeah, I want, even though he's that durable, he's that tough, he's that committed, I want you to eventually see how he feels about what God reveals to him here in Daniel 7. All this apocalyptic end time stuff. Okay, we begin in verse two. It says, following summary of it. Oh, sorry, no, yeah. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring upon the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking, that's the phrase, I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I kept looking. Some of your versions say, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. But if, if he continues to see, it's because he's continuing to look. I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard. Before I just talk to you, before I keep going, I just want to say, has anyone noticed that I'm kind of like the bear of Daniel 7? Yeah. I just have a crippled shoulder, so my shoulder slumps, so yeah, I kind of can relate to that bear. He's a surgeon. He messed me up. So much for all of his training. So we are in verse... After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leper, leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking looking. And then there was a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great things. Look at verse 9. I kept looking. He keeps looking. He keeps looking. He keeps looking. Now, what's he seeing? Predatory beasts that are unclean. But he keeps looking. He keeps looking. He keeps looking. And then he gets down to... The ancient of days, I kept looking until thrones were set up 
And the ancients of days took his seat. His vesture was like the white snow, and the hair of his head were like pure wool. He sees God. His throne was a blazing flame. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousand, thousands upon thousands were attending to him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Verse 11, then I kept looking. Just jump down to verse 13. I kept looking. Guys, he keeps looking, he keeps looking, he keeps looking. Now notice this, down in verse 15. What was the effect that all these things that God showed him have on him? Notice what it says. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. And the visions of my mind, they kept alarming me. Guys, his spirit is in distress. What you're showing me, God, is distressing. But he keeps looking. He keeps looking. He keeps looking. But why does he keep looking? Because he cares about what God cares to reveal to him. What God cares to reveal to us is important, or else God wouldn't reveal it to us. And even though what Daniel was seeing was troubling him, it was distressing him, he kept looking. God loves us so much that he shows us what we need to see. And we should keep looking. I was driving down the highway once and I saw something standing on the side of the road still and it looked like a deer that was dead and it was just standing there stiff and I just got the strangest thought. Oh, those teenage kids are just so crazy. They just picked up a dead deer and they stood it up on his feet on the side of the road just to kind of do some stupid joke. And I said to Cherise at the time we were just married, I said, you know, honey, I can't believe this. But I think some people just stood up a dead deer on the side of the road. This is weird. This is just weird, right? And, 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 and she's like, no, that, that, that was a deer. That was a live deer. And I was like, no, it was just so still. I, I think it was dead. So we turned around to go see. Because, you know, you do that when you're married, right? Like, uh, yeah, exactly. You can't go to sleep. No, you know, just imagine you're, you're, laying, you're laying in bed. It was dead. No, it wasn't. It was dead. It was, no, it wasn't. Right? Like, you just... No, I think, I, I think it was totally dead. I think teenagers came and they stood it on the side of the road. You know, those teenagers, they're crazy. They do all kinds of stupid stuff. Like, no, it was just standing there. So, so I turned around and we drove back to the spot where the deer was. And, and uh, it's very rare that this happens, but she was right. <laughs> it was just crazy. Like, it was just one of those freak, those freak occasions where your wife is right. It was just crazy, guys. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. I know it happens sometimes. Girls can be right. And, and we, so, so the way that we found out that she, she was right was because the deer had, had stumbled onto the road. What had happened was, is the deer had been hit by a car. It had been hit. And after it was hit, it was, it was thrown off, it was basically hit and thrown to the side of the road, and then it, then it kind of got to its feet on the side of the road, and it was just standing there. And it was standing so still 
that it looked like it was dead. And guys, you have those, those moments in life where you just, you just get a sense of how terrible death is. And we were just sitting there and, and, and the thing had stumbled onto the road and it was just standing in the road. And what was so horrible about this, this animal, it, it was not that it had been hit or that it was bleeding because it was bleeding out of its mouth and it was just standing in the road. And it didn't have a look of fear on its face. It would have actually been more comforting if you would have looked at the deer that had just been hit by a car and it had a look of fear on its face. But it didn't have a look of fear on its face. It had a look of bewilderment. Like it was bewildered. It didn't know where it was. It didn't know what was happening to it. It didn't know that it had just gotten smashed by a car. And guys, it was horrible to look at. It was distressing. It was troubling. And so Daniel's having this experience where God's showing him you know, the conquest of nations and the rise and the fall. And, and then it takes him to the point where he sees the judgment. And then, and then throughout the course of the chapter, by the way, he keeps looking, he keeps looking, he keeps looking. And then when you get to the end of the chapter, look how it ends. Verse 28, it says, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale but I kept the matter to myself. So, guys, I just want to, this message is simple. This is an exhortation from God's word to you. Be like Daniel and keep looking at what God wants to reveal to you through his word. Some of the things you see there are troubling, but keep looking, because God wouldn't show you if it wasn't going to ultimately be good for you to see what God wants you to see. Don't just be a pleasure seeker who will only see the pleasant things that God will show you. Be someone who says to Jesus, whatever you show me in your word, whatever you want to communicate to me in your word, I'm going to keep looking. And the prophetic picture that God paints of the future is, is not one that always makes you feel good. But listen, trust me, it's good to know it. It's just like a person who's going to go to war. I served in the United States Navy. And when I served in the U.S. Navy in boot camp, guess what they do? They tell you a lot about what you're going to have to face because, because when you have to face it, you're going to be better prepared if you knew what you were going to have to face, what you were getting into. Do you follow? So if God loves you and if God loves me, he's going to show you what you need to know, not just what you want to see because it's going to make you feel good. Yeah? Ask yourself this question. Since COVID has begun, have I watched the news more or read God's word? Uh, it's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer that. Praise God. For the, have you watched conspiratorial teaching on YouTube? Conspiracy theorists more or kept watching the words of the prophets, the words of God? To keep watching what God is revealing means to not keep watching the things around you. Watching your investment portfolio, tracking your retirement plan more? Or watching the prophetic revelations that God wants to show you? You, you with me? I can sit down and watch a YouTube video. It's easy, it's quick, and somebody can tell me what's going to happen and why we're in the COVID lockdowns and I can learn all this stuff and 90% of it's it's poppycock, right? 
And even if one of those conspiratorial-oriented videos was like true, how's that going to help me prepare for the kingdom of God? It makes much more sense to pay attention to what God is saying than to worry about what conspiracy theorists are saying. Keep watching, keep watching, keep watching. Daniel kept watching. Um, there's so much more I guess I could say about this, and I wish I, was, I had the freer tongue to just kind of say a bit more. But um, uh, I have a friend named Lyle. He, he works for our department. He's, he's a pretty clever guy. Um, I like him. Uh, I met him in England, actually, preaching at a youth conference there many years ago. And he was planting a church in Sydney called Fountain in the City. And uh, he looked just like a kid that I grew up with named Brian Plain, who was a friend of mine. And so as soon as I met Lyle Southwell, I just, I was like, yeah, you look like my friend Brian Plain. And I just was immediately friends with the guy. And you know how you Australians are. Um, you're kind of like cats, you know, like, you know, you just like, you pick up a cat and it gets like really tense. And so I was like, I met this guy and I'm like, yeah, you're like my bro. I'm like, hey, I'm like this American, hey, buddy. Hey. He's like, who are you? I'm like, you look like my friend I grew up with, man. We're going to be good friends. Hey, bro, how's it going? And he's like, you know, I'm not saying, you all are not like all that way. But, uh, and he has this saying that, that he, he, he says about prophecy. He said, he compares it to a woman. And you may have heard this if you listen to his Faith FM show. He says, imagine a woman who was pregnant, but she didn't know she was pregnant. And she had to deliver the baby in complete ignorance of what was actually happening to her. Um, having a baby is a very traumatic experience. It's a very difficult experience. I've seen it happen three times with my wife. And I delivered two of those babies. And yeah, it's a very, very you know, traumatic experience. My wife was able to go through that experience of childbirth informed, very well informed. Number one, because she personally read a lot. And number two, because we had a midwife who oriented her about what she was going to go through. God's prophecies are like God being a midwife, articulating to us what the world is going to go through up until the end of time, until Jesus Christ is birthed back into our reality at the second coming. And it's all out of love. It's all out of concern. It's all out of care. In our church, it's become in vogue. It's become quite fashionable to diminish the value of the prophetic messages that come to us in the books of Daniel and Revelation. And I find this to be so bizarre and so strange. I don't understand it. Because how can you love Jesus if you don't love the revelations that he's chosen to give to you about the future? If I care about Jesus and if I think Jesus is someone worth listening to, then why in the world wouldn't I care about studying the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass. I think that if Jesus wanted me to see and to know and to understand the prophecies, I should want to know and understand the prophecies and not make some artificial divisions between Jesus-centeredness and prophetic preaching. This is bizarre. This is strange. You know, the devil, he separates what God does not. Jesus and prophecy, right? Mercy and justice, right? He does this. The devil does this. And we shouldn't allow him to do this. Now, uh, just to close the message, Daniel kept watching. What should we do? Keep watching. We're prophetically inspired people. Our message is found in Revelation 14, 6 through 12. It's found in the whole canon of Scripture, of course. But prophetically speaking, that's us preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell upon the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. 
Keep watching those prophecies. Keep looking. Keep looking and keep preaching and keep proclaiming. You know, Daniel, he, his, his ability to just, just to fix his attention on God, I believe that was the reason why he was such a power, that's one of the reasons why he was such a powerful man. You're not intimidated by earthly kings when you spend lots of time focusing your attention on the king of kings and what he has to say. You with me? Um, so Daniel not only kept watching, and I'm not going to preach another sermon here, but this is what I would have preached if I wouldn't have taken longer to, to share this information than I would have liked. In Daniel chapter uh, 6, he, he keeps praying in spite of the decrees of Darius the king. In Daniel 3, his friends, they keep obeying irrespective of the pressure that's being placed upon them. And so the prophecies in the book of Daniel teach us about what's going to happen at the end of time and the stories teach us about how we're supposed to relate to the things that happen at the end of time. Keep watching, keep praying, keep obeying. I stood before a, a, a very powerful man once. Uh, he was the captain of the USS Kitty Hawk. And our meeting was not a very comfortable meeting. Uh, I was in the US Navy for four years. And I actually traveled to Australia while, while I was in the United States Navy. I went to Perth. And this was in 1997. 1997. It would have been in the spring the, the North, 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 North American spring. The fall. No, I don't know what it would have been here. The fall. The fall. I'm just looking at my friend because he, he actually was on the ship. So I was the kind of guy who was angry at the government. Strangely enough, I was in the military. <laughs> I'm in the U.S. Navy and I was kind of one of these anti-government guys. Just because I read some books and I got mad, you know. I was a kid, you know, easily manipulated by socialist utopians, you know. So I read a few socialist utopian books and I got really mad at the man. I got mad at the man. I got mad at the oppressor. And there was a policy on my ship that I wasn't appreciative of. And so my captain had a little box on his, um, his door and anybody could, could write him a personal message if they wanted to. And um, so, yeah, I just decided one day that I was going to tell off the captain of the ship. And I was like, I went after him, you know, I just, I just pointed out all of the things that I thought were just really hypocritical and ridiculous about his policies and the restrictions that he had placed on certain men of lower rank, of which I was one, and I was just, just sticking it to him, giving it to him. And I remember I went to my friends and I kind of bragged, you know, I was just like, yeah, you know, I, I wrote a letter to the man, to the man, with all of his oppressive policies, the man. And, um, and they were like, yeah, go get him, Para. Yeah, go get him. And about a month later, uh, my commanding officer, he, he came to me and he said, hey, uh, Airman Para, I've just received a communication uh, from the captain of the ship and, and something's happened. I don't know exactly what's going on, but he wants to see you. And, uh, and I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, okay. He's like, all right, well, listen, just you're going to have to meet me at <laughs> Meet me at 1,500 hours. Uh, have your shoes shined, your hair cut, and your, your uniform pressed. Put on your navy blues and you know, make sure you're ready. I don't know what he wants to talk to you about. Is he, you do anything wrong? I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't know anything I've done. I, I literally, I had fully forgotten. I just fully forgot. I just totally forgot. 
And I remember I was just, you know, I was ironing my, my, my uniform. I was, you know, sh- I shaved, you know, I got a haircut. I was just getting ready to meet with the captain. And I was just like clueless. And I swear, I remember I just, you know, I'm in the mirror, put my medals on, I'm just getting everything, put my hat on. And it just hits me like a ton of bricks. Like, oh, the letter. I bet he wants to talk to me about the letter. And it was intense. I was just like, oh. And it's amazing how you kind of question your, your courage, you know? Like, when you don't understand, when you don't think there's going to be ramifications for your actions, you're just very brave. Um, you're just very, very brave. Um, but to have to stand in opposition to, like you have to understand, you're, when you're in the military, you sign your life away on a, con- on a contractual level, which means you have forsaken your constitutional rights as an American citizen. You're no longer a citizen of the nation, a private citizen with certain inalienable rights. You are now property of the United States military, and you are obligated by nothing more than the orders of your commanding officers, period, and the policies of the United States Navy. You are part of a war machine that's, that's designed to forward and advance the United States' geopolitical agenda. That's why you exist. You've signed away your citizen rights. That's it. And, and it just, but you kind of forget that. You think that you're just like a normal guy walking the streets of the United States. And, and so it just like starts to dawn on me like, oh man. You know, we have like, we had nuclear weaponry on that ship. When there's a storm and the ship is in port, like in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government says you have to leave because if that ship, due to that storm, like something goes wrong, Hong Kong turns into a desert. You understand? One ship, one ship, one U.S. battle carrier group, like U.S. carrier group, would defeat the, the Australian Navy. There's 12 of them, like literally, and they're circumnavigating the globe. This is power, unbridled military power. And I'm going to go talk to the captain, right, who can just like authorize ballistic missile strikes on Russia, like with his authority. And I'm like Airman Para. Like the mad 18-year-old who's going to stick it to the man, right? And you're so strong. You're so courageous. You're so brave, right? You're so brave. You're so strong. When you're around your friends after watching rap videos and reading, you know, iconoclastic writings by socialist utopians, right? So you write the letter to the man. Ooh. So I was, I was, I was like, oh, man, he's going to talk to me on the letter. This, by the way, this plays into the sermon because of the, the power of Daniel's witness. The power of Daniel's witness. How he could stand before kings. Stand before kings with confidence and courage and his friends with holy boldness when they stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And the fire is right there. This is not like a, a game. This is not a movie. This is the harsh realities of a barbaric world where the highest right is the right of conquest. This is not a Christianized West with Judeo-Christian value systems where we care about the victim and the poor and the innocent. No, this is like the Neo-Babylonian emperor who thinks that he's going to be deified because of the number of people that he cruelly kills and tortures. It's a different world, my friends. It's a different world. And here's Daniel's friend standing in front of the king saying, you know what, king? We're not even going to be really careful about choosing our words right in front of you. That's how scared of you we are. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar would have never heard anyone speak? He would have never heard anyone in his entire life speak to him that way. Trust me. He never heard anyone say to him, hey, you know what? I'm, I have so little concern about what you can do to me 
then I'm not even going to watch my words when I speak to you. Our God, who we serve, he can deliver us from your hand. But you know what? If he decides not to, we don't care. If not, we will not obey your commands to worship your image. We will not. Because we serve a higher king. And we know his word. And we see what the final uh, kingdom will be. It will not be you. It will be his. We're going to be loyal to him. So the captain has called me. And so I'm dressed up. And it's, kind of, it's intimidating just getting dressed up, right? So I show up and I get up into the command center of the ship where no losers like me ever are. I'm like in the hole, like in the bottom of the ship, like grinding and chipping and painting and moving ammunition. And here I am, I'm in, I'm in the top of the ship and it's all this equipment and these Marines are there with their M16s and I have to, I have to stand, they say, okay, stand right here, I'm in para. And I stand like this. I'm standing like, okay, just wait here. And they basically put three armed guards in front of me, like just three guys right there with the M16s like this. And they're like three of them, one here, one here, and they're just staring at me like this. And I'm just like, and they made me stand there for 10 minutes. I think it was probably intentional, but I don't know. Like, yeah, we're going to make this guy really scared. He thought he was so tough when he wrote that letter. And so the captain comes out, a little bit of small talk. I was scared, shaking in my boots, shaking. So, Airman Para, um, could you explain to me what, uh, what you meant by the letter? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I just love the Navy and <laughs> just love my country. And uh, I just am so happy to serve in this great command under your leadership. And literally, I was just like, don't throw me in the brig. Like, the guy can throw you in the brig for three months, bread and water. Actually, it's three weeks. That's an exaggeration. Sorry. Three weeks. Three weeks. That's a long time. Bread and water for three weeks. And, and he, can, he can remove certain amounts of your pay. Now, I didn't know at the time, but my offense wasn't that great. It was just, he, he really just wanted to see, is this guy a lunatic? Or what's his, what's, what do you think he's doing? He just wanted to talk to me to see if I was a danger on the ship. I had actually committed no crime by the things that I said. But I didn't know that. I was like, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. I love you, sir. <laughs> I was basically like, I love you. You're so handsome. Like, what can, I, can I dance for you? You know, I just, I'd do anything because I was terrified. So, 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 so where did the courage go? It's, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's like, you know what we're like sometimes? We're like people who watch movies of war and imagine that if we were there, we'd be brave. My stepfather was a combat veteran in Vietnam and he told me about the first time he saw action and he said, the first time people were shooting at me, I froze. And I just got this thought, he's trying to kill me and I couldn't move. He said, I was horrified. I was hor it's horrifying. It's terrifying. So we sit in the movie theater, you're eating popcorn, you're nice and cozy. Oh, it's so comfortable, this is so nice. War heroes, music. Yeah, I can go do it. Are you sure about that? But you get into the reality Thousands of miles from home, hungry, eating terrible food, not taking showers for weeks, being cold, freezing, sleeping in dirt, not sleeping at all, 
people trying to kill you? Are you going to be brave? So we can only be brave. We can only stand. We can only keep praying, keep obeying if we keep watching. Keep watching. So that's the message for the evening, guys. May God bless us as we journey forward in time. May we, like Daniel, keep watching, keep praying, and keep obeying. And not be like the cowardly 19-year-old social justice warrior who thought he was going to stick it to the man. May we be like Daniel and his friends. God bless you. Thank you for your time.